The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. You do. <laughs> How nice to see all of you tonight. It's always a little strange for me to hear myself introduced, and I wonder, who is that person? <clears throat> who have I been? And swirls through my mind memories of all the different people I've been in my life. You ever have that experience of realizing that you are different? You were, you are, you will be different. And the question that we're exploring these four weeks is, as that person, as that collection of persons that you are, have been and will be, are you connected? Because listening, in my experience, is the way through which we become connected. I know for me, during most of my young adult, my childhood, I felt very disconnected. And the first path, the first part of my life, my path was really, how do I become connected? And I first fell into yoga, or more accurately, a yoga book literally fell into my hands one slightly hung over Saturday morning as I walked through a bookstore and I maybe bumped the shelf, I don't know, but it fell right into my hands. I'd never heard of yoga before or meditation or anything like that. I was a really hard-nosed, ruthless criminal defense lawyer, disconnected. But I had learned as a criminal defense lawyer, that the secret was listening. And the way in which I listened and how I listened as a criminal trial lawyer, I could hear the jury in its silence. And I could hear when someone was lying. And everyone lies about something the time of day, what they were wearing, some insignificant thing that they said. And when I heard the lie, like a cat with a mouse, I had them. A very disconnected use of listening. If you were here back in December when I sort of inadvertently started this series of talks, I talked about uh, four steps or practices to listening as a spiritual practice. And last week, starting last week, when Andrea asked me to sit in for her for four weeks, I talked about the first step of deeply listening, and that was to become curious requires that we give up certainty. 
when I listened to a witness on the witness stand, I didn't listen from the place of knowing what they were saying. I listened with curiosity for when they would lie. Certain that they would, but not certain about which they would lie. So I had to be deeply curious. It's hard for us to let go of certainty. For most of us, and certainly a long time in my life, knowing was how I identified myself. I was one who knew. I knew about a certain number of things. I thought I knew about Daniel. And I definitely thought I knew about being a good trial lawyer. And I definitely knew that I knew about the racism and prejudice that drove southern courtrooms, especially in an incredibly conservative place like Charleston, South Carolina. Its beauty is only matched by its conservatism. But I really thought I knew. I listened from that certainty of knowing. And life has worn that away from me. The older I get, the less certain I am. And the less I know. So that for me is the really important first step of practicing listening as a spiritual practice. And tonight I'm going to talk about the second step, which is listening for connection to others in life. And next week I will talk about gaining the ability to hear what's not being said, to hear what's in the silence. And then two weeks from tonight, I'll talk about the mystery of not to. When we listen from a place where we are not separate. But tonight it's about how do we start to gain that connection. That sense of connection that most of us, especially in a highly urbanized area, like this in which we live. We spend so much of our time feeling disconnected. I sat tonight in Whole Foods eating my supper and that's what we call it in South Carolina, by the way. We eat supper. Breakfast, dinner, and supper. And I watched and listened to what wasn't being said all around me but what I heard really loudly was a sense of disconnection and separateness and a deep sadness around me. I know you know that place. You've been there. You've been in the big stores. You've wandered through, feeling that sense of disconnection not being known. That absence of, if you grew up in a small town, that absence of going into a store where you were known, 
Sometimes that was a little oppressive. But it was also deeply comforting to be known. To walk down the street and have someone say hello to you because they knew you. So somehow in this highly urbanized, fast-paced, everyone's head looking into their little machine, we've lost that sense of connection to ourselves, to others, and to life. So how do we regenerate it? How do we listen in a way that we recapture that sense of connection? even when we're in a place like Whole Foods and we know no one. I remember going backpacking a lot during those days when I was a lawyer in South Carolina. It was an escape for me to get out of the intensity of the life and death nature of my work. When you represent people who are facing the death penalty, it's intense, to say the least. And I would often go alone because I was starting, this was after that book fell off the shelf into my hands, and I would go off and do yoga and what I thought was meditate, uh, doing my best. And I would be in the woods alone. And I began to hear in a different way. I noticed that I could hear someone coming long before I could hear them coming and definitely long before I could see them. And I noticed if I sat by the river long enough, like Siddhartha in that wonderful book by Hermann Hesse, I could hear the river. We all have that ability. It wasn't some special gift in the quiet of the woods when we're connected with life we have a different way of hearing and in this urbanized life that we have it's more difficult Uthant, the first Asian to serve as Secretary General of the UN defines spirituality as the tuning of the inner person with the great secrets and mysteries that are around us. In other words, listening to the great secrets and mysteries that are around us. Imagine they're right around us, even in this urban area, not just when we're out in the wilderness, although it's much easier there. But how do we connect to life? As a practical matter, how do we connect? I've talked in both of these talks about uh, what got me started on this listening jag was uh, coming across a book by Mark Nepo, a poet and writer, called 7,000 Ways to Listen. And he writes in that book about two sides of a coin about connecting. And one side of that coin is the mystery of revelation, the mystery of awakening, the mystery of wonder and awe and beauty and love. 
And all of us have felt that at times in our lives, especially when we've connected deeply with another human being. That sense of love and connection that arises is awesome. It's wonderful. It's profound. And so many of us have felt that and then been hurt by the disconnection or been hurt by our inability to stay connected with that person or been hurt by our lack of skill at relationship or their lack of skill at relationship. And most of that lack of skill comes from the first step. We're certain. We know the way we like it. We know the way it should be. We know the way they should be. We know the way they were when we had that wonderful moment of awe and connection. And so we hold on with certainty. And that certainty is the death of connection. So we've had that sense of revelation at various times of our lives and we've felt connection. And then somehow something arises and it goes away. And we're hurt by it, or we're angered by it, or we feel deeply disturbed. What did I do wrong? How can I learn to do this better? Or what's wrong with them? Don't they see how wonderful I am? All the thoughts that we have that arise. And we think that we're thinking those thoughts. But those thoughts are arising in the space of the loss of that wonder and awe from the connection. Life is fundamentally a deep paradox. Everything that we can possibly know has an opposite. We're here, but there's also a there. And if there weren't a there, we would be forever here. The paradox of the wonder of revelation is the erosion of disappointment, of discouragement, of being worn away by life so that we can receive the wonder and awe. We sort of stumble into it as a child. I imagine, like me, there are times that you remember your childhood, times of play, times of love and excitement and connection, when wonder and awe was just a normal, everyday part of life because everything was wonderful and awesome. And then there was that teenage awakening and young adulthood, and here we all are struggling with the loss of that wonder and awe having been eroded by life. But it's so hard to accept the erosion because it should always be wonderful and awesome. But without the erosion, we would never know the wonder and awesome. And without the wonder and awesomeness, 
we would not know the erosion. There is a fundamental paradox to all of life. Two sides of a coin. In daily terms, the work of listening, Nepo says, is constantly to be worn free of our preconceptions and preferences so that nothing stands in the way of our direct experience of life. So we have this wonderful, awesome connection with someone. It's revealed to us. It just spontaneously arises when we meet someone or we have an experience, we come into some place. And then there's the natural erosion, the paradoxical other that goes with that. We can't seem to hold them both. We expect it always to be this wonder and awe. And when the erosion arises, we feel split apart. We feel disappointed. We feel hurt. We can't do that dance of the paradox. We can't hold it as two sides of a coin. And so we lose our presence. Both the wonderful presence that we get that we unwrap when we have wonder and awe with someone, when we're learning about them. And they're so, those moments are so precious. And also our very presence. Because presence is the key to connection. And presence requires me to be uncertain. I can't be present when I know. I can't be present with you when I know. There is no openness in me when I know. There is no curiosity in me when I know. There is no opportunity for you to show me your wonder and awe when I know. Even if I expect you to show me your wonder and awe, I have a projection as to what that's going to be. So I'm listening as the Buddha taught us so well through the three characteristics. I'm listening through my sense of Daniel, my belief in my separate selfness that you also have that I need to be a certain way. And there's no presence. Daniel isn't there. He can't be there. There's a wonderful Rumi story that goes like this. A certain person came to the friend's door and knocked. Who's there? It's me. Go away. There's no place for raw meat at this table. The person wandered for a year. Nothing but the fire of separation can change hypocrisy and ego. The person returned completely cooked walked up and down in front of the friend's house, gently knocked. Who is it? 
you. Please come in, myself. There's no place in this house for two. That's presence. I have been gifted with the wonder and awe. And I know that it's the other side of the coin from the erosion of life, the discouragement, the struggles, the dukkha. The dukkha that's a part of life. That we pretend as hard as we can isn't part of life and shouldn't be part of life because we should be all in wonder and awe all the time and all in love all the time. And so when the dukkha arises, we resist it, we try to fix it, we try to pretend it's not there, we try to make it not so, and we struggle with it. And in that struggle, in that resistance to the dukkha, in that resistance to the loss of the wonder and awe, I create a self called Daniel. And that self is the one that's outside being separate from you. Lost in my separateness. Now I'm still being eroded away because that's the natural paradox of life. There's no way to escape that. But in that erosion, I have the opportunity to let go and connect. But what gives me the fire to do that? So long as I'm caught in the dukkha, the suffering of the disconnection, and I resist it and I struggle with it, I will just feel defeated by life and discouraged. And in that place, I search for things that will be pleasant, that will make me feel better. And I hope that those things will stay in my life because they do make me feel better when they're in my life, whatever they are, whatever the things that you search for, that I've searched for, success or financial gain or lots of friends or a nice beautiful home and security, job, etc. And I discovered that those things, even when I have them, aren't permanent. They don't last. They, like everything else in life, are subject to the paradox of coming and going, of wonder and awe and erosion. But I keep grasping to hold on to them and to try to make them permanent. And the suffering arises and the discouragement and I'm disconnected. I wander in that disconnection. What is the way through? Our practice for certain. And our practice hones the power of our intention. Our intention to connect. To connect when there's wonder and awe and to connect when there's the erosion, the paradoxical opposite, the erosion of suffering. To connect to both. To connect to both and, and not 
just when there's wonder and awe and that sense of love arising and that sense of grace and joy. It's an easy place for us to connect. Holding both is where we learn to sustain the connection over time and deeply connect. Listening is the key to doing that. As I listen, I hear the waves of life. I hear the wonder and awe and the erosion as two parts of one wave. And I live in that movement of life, that flow of life, that sense of wonder and awe and connection and that sense of disconnection and separation and erosion, knowing that with the paradox, that's the flow of life. That's the way life is. Our fundamental problem, as I touched on a little bit last week, is that we're stuck in Newtonian physics instead of the quantum reality that we actually live in. You know, in the Newtonian world, things were a certain way. And that was a mechanistic world. And I talked last week about this amazing experiment in quantum physics, the double slit experiment, you might recall, where I, as the observer, if I am intending to see a wave, the electron that I'm measuring will act as a wave. And if I set up the experiment in such a way that I want to see a particle, then that's what I see. So quantum is connection. I'm connected to what I see and I see what I intend to see. My intention, how I set up an experiment as a quantum physicist reveals exactly what my intention was. And so it is, I believe, with our life. The hard part is being aware of our intent. Something arises and we think, oh, that's not the way I wanted it. And we feel disconnected and eroded and discouraged and we lose our sense of wonder and awe. The reason we feel that that's not the way I wanted it is because we're not aware and mindful of the intent that gave rise to our experience. We haven't said deeply, ah, being in this moment is like this. Instead, we say, wait a minute, being in this moment is not supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be this other way that I thought it was going to be. But the moment is like this. 
as we sit here, as I'm listening to myself, I'm thinking, is this me talking? Is this what I intended to say? This is it, right here. This is what I'm saying. I can leave here and go, well, I wonder what that was like for me. wonder what that was like for them. Am I aware in this moment of my intent to communicate this paradoxical reality of life that is the source of so much of our suffering that we can bring joy and a sense of connection into moments of love, wonder, and awe and then lose it when the natural, paradoxical other side of life appears where there's a struggle, you say things that I don't like, I get angry at you, your preferences are different than mine, and I'm struggling with whether to have my preferences or accept yours and feel like if I accept yours all the time, I will lose myself. But if I try to push my preferences on you, then you'll get angry and upset and we'll have an argument. And all those communication things that all of us do constantly with each other, with ourselves, our friends, our co-workers. I know we do it constantly because I do it and those are the people that come to my court having sued each other over doing that constantly. Instead, the pathway through is to recognize without blaming ourselves, oh, my life is like this. My relationship with my friends, oh, it's like this. Exactly the way it is. Oh, I have an intent of which I'm not aware because this is what I'm seeing. There's a quantum reality happening here and the experiment is occurring the way I intended it even though I'm not aware of my intent. My mindfulness is not at the level where I know my intent. But I can see what's arising and I can go, ah, so, this is it. This is the way it is. This is my life now. This is the way it is. A place of deep acceptance. Knowing that it will change. Because a fundamental reality of life as the Buddha taught us is constant change. And really, I mean, how many of us don't know that? But still we grasp and try to hold on to things to prevent change from happening when it's the way we like it. But when it's the way we don't like it, we're very happy for the change to occur. We want it to change and be different. And yet there's that weirdness where we struggle against change. Instead of knowing that it's part of the fundamental fabric of life. A constant, irrevocable, always arising change. The acceptance of which 
allows us to go, oh, my life is like this. The resistance to which causes suffering to arise. I don't like that my life is like this. And in the first, we connect. In the second, we disconnect. In connection, there's joy and wonder and awe. In disconnection, there's suffering and a feeling of loss and separation. Our intent is revealed to us by the way it is. And as we practice and our mindfulness deepens, we can see our intent and the connection to the way it is and refine that intent. The Buddha taught often about the entanglements of I'm right and you're wrong. He said that no matter how we reach a belief-based conclusion, it can only be either right or wrong. If our conclusion arises from what we believe, it can only be right or wrong. And so a wise person only says, my faith is thus, but I cannot come to a definite conclusion. Only this is true and everything else is wrong. That's a place of wisdom. If all the lawyers that I mediate cases with could get that, I would be out of work. It would be actually a pretty good thing. But... I'd be out of work. I'm not worried about getting put out of work. (laughs) I know that they will say, I'm right, and the other side's wrong. And not only are they wrong, they're really wrong. (laughs) They're dead wrong, or they're mean wrong, or they're bad wrong, or all the projections that go with that. And our practice is to come directly into the face of reality recognize the paradoxical nature of life, the constant change, such that we ride that wave of connection, wonder and awe, disconnection, separation, connection, wonder and awe, disconnection, a sense of separation, and our intent is strong So we remain connected. We're connected to the wonder and awe and we're connected to the sense of disconnection. That's okay because it's part of the natural flow of life. It's a place where when I sense that with my wife whom I adore, I sense her disconnection from me I can intend and strengthen my feeling of love directed towards her in that moment when I feel her disconnection rather than reacting to it and pulling away, which is a normal human move in relationship. Oh, you're pulling back. 
I'm not safe, I'll pull back too. Instead, we move towards that because we know from our practice that life is like this. There's the wonder and awe and there's the disconnection and the wonder and awe and the disconnection. There's the natural flow of the paradox. It can't not be. If life was only daylight, we would die. If there was only in-breath and no out-breath, we would die. There has to be the flow of opposites for life to exist. But we resist it so intensely and as a result we suffer. Listen to life and when you listen to life you see the flow of opposites. You hear the connection and disconnection. You hear it in all the people around you who will talk about, oh, I had this great time, or oh, I'm feeling so terrible. Life just sucks. It's really awful. It's constantly one or the other like that. But there's not an acceptance of that one or the other like that. There's such a powerful desire for it to be the way we want it to be that we're not aware that that desire to have it be the way we want it to be actually drives us into more and more of not the way we want it to be. I read all the Don Juan books. Some of you are old enough to know those books. They were great. They were wonderful back in the 60s and 70s. This wonderful yaki shaman. And there's one part of them that I just flashed on as I said that. Don Juan and his shaman buddy would sit around in the porch And since they knew intent and they knew the power of intention, they just sat around and laughed. (laughs) And I I never understood that. I would go, it just put my mind on tilt. And I just had a flash on that as I heard myself saying what I said. Oh! In long meditation retreats, listening for my intent before I stand or before I reach, sensing and feeling that intent is one of the practices that I'm pretty terrible at. My intellectual understanding of it is growing. My practice understanding needs a lot of work. 
And in my life, I'm seeing more and more how my happiness, how my sense of equanimity and peace is totally tied to my ability to listen to my sense of connection and disconnection. And in that listening, I hear my intention instead of projecting it out on you, whoever the you is in my life at that moment, that it's about how they're not being the way they should be to make me happy. Because after all, that's their job. Right? To make us happy. But none of us really sees it that way about anybody else except the people outside of us. So, to simplify this rather paradoxical talk, listening to life is a key to the arising of a deep satisfaction with the way it is. And in a deep satisfaction with the way it is, happiness and peace naturally arise. Listening to life requires that I listen to the paradoxical flow between wonder and awe and revelation and love and excitement and joy and the erosion of loss and aging and sickness and death and separation. And I hold them both. Because if I like one and resist the other, suffering arises because they're both part of life. And whatever part of life I resist, that's where dukkha arises. And whatever part of life I cling to, that's where anicca arises because I'm trying to hold on to that as permanent even though that natural flow is going on. And in the way I suffer, and in the way I try to make things permanent, that I prefer my preferences, in that way I create this false sense of self called Daniel. My preferences make up me. And in that way I rub against life, I suffer, I try to hold on to make it permanent, I create Daniel and I continue to suffer. Aimless Love by Billy Collins, one of my favorite poets. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. 
In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her table in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap, one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door. The love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for the next arrow. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for the next arrow. That's how to approach life. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. (laughs) So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. So, questions or comments, doubts, disagreements, rotten eggs, tomatoes? Over here? Well, you'll have a little time while the microphone gets to you. <coughs> so my question is around um, the, the paradox of setting intention and listening to life. Your, your example of this double split experiment suggests that uh, with our intentions, we can create a reality. So how is that different from just listening to life? The double slit experiment is where a physicist is trying to measure a particle to see whether it's a wave or a particle, to measure an electron, I'm sorry, to see whether it's a wave or a particle. And at the last minute, if she opens one slit, it shows up as a particle. If she opens two slits, the electron shows up as a wave. And the paradox of that 
is that it's as if the electron knows the experimenter's intention because the electron is moving and if the experimenter waits till the very last moment to open one or two slits, it doesn't matter. It always shows up as a wave with two slits or an, a particle with one slit. So what that means to me in my very, very tiny knowledge of quantum physics is that we are so connected in life that I don't even, at least at my state of mindfulness, I often don't know my intent until after life has shown it to me. Now there may be a time when my practice deepens, when I intend with more clarity, with more foreknowledge. I certainly can see it sometimes. I intend to eat a certain meal or I intend to give a talk and tonight this talk didn't come out at all like I thought it would. So I recognize that there's some connection between the purity of my intent and the intent of all who came tonight. And that mystery is really beyond me. And I trust that it will always be beyond me. And it's one of the great wonders and awe of life to just accept that mystery and say, oh, tonight was like this. That must have been what I intended. <laughs> Instead of, oh, I did a really bad job, or what a bad audience, or those people were strange, or I was strange. You know, the judgments we have, the after criticisms that we have. And I've learned that when I have that, it erodes my presence. Because then I'm more tentative. I'm more fearful. I'm not really willing to just be all out there. I'm careful. I'm guarded. So there's this paradoxical interaction where intent is both revealed to me and created by me. In some mysterious way, it interacts with the intent of all those with whom I'm connected. So how could it be fully me? That's when I become psychotic or an egomaniac. And I might be powerful enough to force my intent on people. And so we have that representation in history. We have the Hitlers and the dictators and the really powerful people who force their intent on millions of people around them. And then there's the humbleness of other great leaders like the Buddha 
who certainly had enormous power, but used it to reveal and to connect and to open and to share. Yes. Can you um, describe the significance or what, what did it mean when Carlos Castaneda and uh, Don Juan were sitting there and laughing and laughing and laughing? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> <laughs> But I can tell you where I've come to in the mystery of reading that and wondering about it and thinking I knew and thinking I knew and this is where I am now with it. I'm happy to share that with you. There was a time in my life that was... I've had several really low times in my life when I felt totally disconnected and totally separated. But this one particular time, I think it's fair to say, was the real nadar of my life. I had lost my marriage of 25 years, I had gotten my dream job at teaching at Duke Law School to uh, hope to save that marriage by getting further back down south. And it was a mess. What I was handed was not what I had been told was there. There was literally no money. And a friend of mine was having a conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for mediators interested in contemplative spiritual practices. And he and I had taught lawyers how to meditate together. And he wanted me to come. And I said, I'm really in bad shape. I can't. I, I, I just can't do it. I can barely get out of bed. Flying to Kalamazoo, Michigan, being around a bunch of people, forget it. He called me up uh, several weeks later. You need to come, Daniel. No, nope, can't do it. And then one day, a ticket, a plane ticket, arrived in the mail <laughs> from Durham to Kalamazoo. And I said, well, shit, I guess I'm going. <laughs> and I sort of picked myself up, and I mean, I was, I was dragging You've maybe been at times like that in your life where everything just seemed hopeless and everything was lost and I had no sense of myself as worthy or worthwhile. I'm sitting on a little puddle hopper from Chicago to Kalamazoo and I'm so disconnected and I'm so frightened really to be around a bunch of people that I gradually begin to sense that most of the people on this little connector plane are going to this conference. 
And in the seat in front of me, I see the back of a woman's head and I hear her voice. I can't hear the words that she's saying. I can only hear her voice. And I am mesmerized by that voice. And I sort of feel myself as if I had been a deflated balloon. And a little bit of, just a bare little bit of life got pumped into me from listening to that voice. She's now my wife. She's why I'm here. So, there is a mystery to life that is way beyond what we can know but we try so desperately to know, to protect ourselves, and to connect. We connect from knowing. We connect from wanting to connect. And the paradox of that mystery is revealed to us when we let go enough to open to it. And I suspect that Don Juan got that. And he got it in such a way that he saw the humor in it and the wonder in it and the mystery in it and the randomness of it and how difficult it is for us as human beings to open to it because of the mystery and the wonder and the randomness of it. But when we have an experience like that that I had because there's a whole story there that was the pinnacle of which was when I finally got up the courage to reach out to her about a year and a half later and I sent her an email and I said, I'm coming to California to visit my daughter and I find myself thinking of you as more than just a friend. Could we go out to dinner? And I sent it on a Thursday. Nothing. I check my email roughly once every five minutes. <laughs> Give or take a few. Friday, nothing. Saturday, nothing. So I was way back in the seventh grade, you know. Because we had talked professionally. We had done a workshop together at a conference in San Antonio and had breakfast together. And we had talked on the phone very friendly and professional, a little personal, but not too much. And I was struggling with what to do, and I meditated one the Sunday morning after sending that email, and I got really clear. I do not know. I do not know what's next in my life. It has been a disaster for the last few years, and I don't know what's next. But I do know I have to leave this place. 
I was living in my former neighbor's basement with mold. And I stood up from my meditation cushion and the phone rang. And it was Dana. And I took a deep breath right in the seventh grade, just waiting to be rejected for going to the dance. And she said, word for word, what was in my email. Because we compared it later. And I lost it. And I couldn't speak. I started crying. And so she went back to the seventh grade because there was a preternatural pause between her reaching out and saying this and my just, you know. So she said, well, 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 if you don't feel that way, it's okay, we could still be friends. And I finally got my voice and I said, so you didn't get my email? And she said, what email? And I described it. Turned out she had been in a workshop all weekend with Angelus Arian, the teacher up in Marin who is a cultural anthropologist about manifesting her dreams. And she had talked about me with Angelus and Angelus had said, he's at your gate, you have to invite him in. So she had gone home and written this all out on a piece of paper. Now that is really the wonder and mystery of life. And here I am. And here you are. And but for that, we wouldn't be. Have joy and awe about that. Not, oh, that happened to Daniel, that could not happen to me. It is happening with you. It's already happened with you. It will happen with you again and again as you open and let go of your certainty and listen for how you may connect with life. I think that's what Don Juan knew. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you so much for drawing all of that out of me. (laughs) 